This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get started. As always, I do need to take the time to thank everyone who continues to support California Dreaming on Patreon, as well as new supporters that have recently joined. I will be mailing out your perks in the next couple of weeks. I'd like to thank the following people who wanted to give the show a little boost for the holidays and increase their pledge in December. Lindsay G., Emily H., and Tanya T. I'd also like to thank our newest patrons, Danielle, Wendy L., Cody H., Samantha S., April G., Jeffrey T., Crystal, and Juliet H. Thank you for believing in the show, and thank you for listening week in and week out. As long as you keep listening, we will keep making. There are so many words to describe a fringe movement in America. The far right. The alt-right. Right-wing populists. White supremacists. White nationalists. White separatists. Neo-Nazis. Neo-fascists. Neo-confederates. Isolationists. Protectionists. Neo-reactionists. Identitarianists, nativists, paleoconservatives, anarcho-capitalists, national anarchists, paleo-libertarians, Christian fundamentalists, neo-monarchists, just to name a few. There are so many things that they are. They're racist, sexist, anti-Semites, misogynists homophobes, Islamophobes, xenophobes, whatever other ists and phobes there are out there. Whatever you want to call it, the alt-right is rooted in hatred and prejudice. And today, we are going to discuss one of those groups that even pushes the boundaries of the alt-right. So much so, they almost make the alt-right look like amateurs. We are going to discuss some of the crimes that they've been responsible for. One that happened right here in Southern California that has put a spotlight on a movement that is usually saved for the dark corners of our society. The Adam Waffen Division. 
Full disclosure, dreamers. I had never heard of this group before I heard about this case that we are going to discuss today. Atomwaffen is a German word that translates to English as atomic weapon, and it is a neo-Nazi terrorist organization based here in the United States. They formed in 2013, operating primarily out of Florida, but there are large numbers of active members known to have organized in Texas and Montana, but it has been reported that there is known Adam Waffen activity in at least 23 states and Canada. They describe themselves as a very fanatical, ideological band of comrades who do both activism and militant training. Hand-to-hand, -hand, arms training, and various other forms of training. As for activism, they spread awareness in the real world through unconventional means. They are considered to be a part of the alt-right, which I discussed in the opening, but they are very much considered to be one of the most extreme sorts of organizations, even within that extreme organization of the alt-right. As a matter of fact, one article I read on Medium.com, written by Jay Canrahan, said that Adam Waffen is so much on the fringe, it isn't even considered alt-right. He said that he's been keeping track of Adam Waffen's activities since 2016 when he first heard of the group in an internet rabbit hole. The group has been growing fast in 2018. Their propaganda grew to be more sophisticated as well. Having started off by putting up flyers on college campuses, they moved into filming themselves doing arms training activities in the forests of the state of Washington. They were targeting a very specific group of people, young, disenfranchised men from across the United States with what Hanrahan called a unique aesthetic and an apocalyptic worldview. He would say Adam Waffen's division's ideology is all over the place, but he would also say it's best described as militant, esoteric Hitlerism with a mix of Nazism left-hand path occultism, Christian identity, and anarcho-nihilism. The extreme idea is that society is a complete calamity and that we are all screwed. That everything that we have manifested into human society, civilization, leviathan, industry, global capitalism, everything is beyond salvation. So the only response to this is complete, unhinged, unmitigated hostility. This means complete rejection of all government, all authority, and all morality. Done with the attempts at making demands. Done with the visions of an unattainable utopia. Done with being a slave to government agendas. That the only path to resist all of this is 100% repudiation. Basically, our current state of affairs is so dreadful, destruction of society has become the desirable option. A simple way of describing the Adam Waffen division would be to say their members are apocalyptic Nazis. But in order to really understand where this group is coming from, it's important to be very specific when discussing their philosophies and what they are rooted in.
And Hanrahan would say that the one thing Adam Waffen is not is alt-right, and to do so would be inaccurate. Understanding that the alt-right has its own set of extremists, and that's putting it nicely if you ask me, many of them vary in their range of willingness to resort to violence. Many would never even consider violence as a means of expression, but this is not the case with the Adam Waffen division. They do not fit in this category. Violence is their go-to, and they would even go so far as to openly malign the alt-right, even their most extreme neo-Nazi figures. Adam Waffen members desire a complete annihilation of the system. They don't care about President Trump, and they don't care about all the alt-right type followers he has. They look to revere such individuals as Dylan Roof, the white supremacist-slash-mass-murderer responsible for the June 17, 2015 Charleston church shooting, Anders Breivik, the Norwegian far-right terrorist who, on July 22, 2011, first detonated a vehicle bomb in Oslo, killing eight people, and then shot and killed 69 people at a workers' youth league summer camp on the island of Utoya. Ted Kaczynski, also known as the Unabomber, who was a domestic terrorist and author of anarchist philosophies responsible for killing three people and injuring 23 others in his attempt to launch a revolution by way of a cross-country bombing campaign that targeted people involved in modern technology while expressing opposition for industrialization and a support for advancing a nature-centered style of anarchism. Timothy McVeigh, a domestic terrorist who perpetrated the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing which killed 168 people and was said to have been an act on McVeigh's part in retaliation to the government's response to the 1992 Ruby Ridge siege in Naples, Idaho and the 1993 Waco, Texas siege. And Charles Manson, the cult leader from here in California, whose followers committed a series of nine murders, and he famously had that swastika tattooed in the middle of his forehead. So yeah, these are the people that Adam Waffen division members like to hold in high regard. These are their personal heroes. Simply put, Adam Waffen are the most extreme of the extreme. This group and its members have four main objectives. To overthrow the United States government by using terrorism and guerrilla warfare. To commit terrorist acts against the United States by way of nuclear terrorism, the murder of non-whites, the destruction of the U.S. electric grid, and the bombing of water treatment plants. To engage in ethnic cleansing and race war against non-whites, and to establish a national socialist state in North America, as they consider there has been an egregious displacement of the white race, both culturally and racially, and this is a direct result of societal and governmental systems collapse, and because democracy and capitalism have been pushed aside by Jewish oligarchies and globalist bankers. Adam Waffen Division encourages the burning of the American flag as well as the Constitution 
and they have filmed themselves doing such activities. They encourage attacks on the government and minority groups, but there is a particular emphasis on Jews. Their members are mostly young teenagers up through their early to mid-twenties, and they actively recruit on college campuses, including the University of Chicago, the University of Central Florida, the Old Dominion University, and Boston University. They hung recruitment posters that urged students to, quote, join your local Nazis, and the Nazis are coming. Adam Waffen Division spreads their propaganda by way of the internet and by the distribution of flyers, posters, and stickers. They gather in person and participate in what are called hate camps, which are organized hiking excursions that include military-style training drills and activities. They participate in white supremacist rallies and events that are organized by other white supremacist groups, and their members have been connected to some very serious and violent crimes, including murder, as well as plots to attack nuclear facilities and synagogues. Adam Waffen announced their formation on a neo-Nazi website, ironmarch.org, in the fall of 2015, but their website is no longer available. However, it can be viewed on the Wayback Machine. And this is what their homepage said. Formed in 2013, the Adam Waffen Division is a revolutionary national socialist organization centered around political activism and the practice of an autonomous fascist lifestyle. As an ideological band of comrades, we perform both activism and militant training, hand-to-hand and arms training. We spread awareness in the real world through unconventional means, and it has worked. We often go hunting, adventuring, and a favorite is urban exploring. We have various specialists in the group ranging from many occupations. Keyboard warriorism has nothing to do with what we are and what we do. Joining us means serious dedication, not only to the Adam Waffen Division and its members, but to the goal of ultimate, uncompromising victory. With this means only those willing to get out on the streets, in the woods, or wherever we may be in the world and work together in the physical realm. As it must be emphasized, no keyboard warriorism. But we do, however, have some among us who have adept programming or hacking skills. If you don't want to meet up and get things done, don't bother. The rest of the world is collapsing beneath us all as we speak. The system is beginning to suffer the consequences of its corruption. The failure of democracy and capitalism has given way to the Jewish oligarchies and the globalist bankers, resulting in the cultural and racial displacement of the white race. We have absolutely no room for moderates and cowards. We wish to appeal to the radical in the struggle, as it is the radical that etches their place in history. There is nothing that can be fixed in a system that is inherently flawed. National socialism is the only solution to reclaim dominion over what belongs to us. The West cannot be saved, but it can be rebuilt and even stronger without the burdens of the past. Needless to say, since its inception, essentially in the past couple of years, 
Adam Waffen Division has emerged as one of the most disturbing hate groups in the United States. And in a span of eight months, members of the group have been tied to several murders. Because of their volatile and violent ideology, and in the wake of these killings, and as a direct result of an in-depth report conducted by ProPublica, several companies have banned Adam Waffen from utilizing their online services to spread their message or find financing for their activities. And the manufacturer of their t-shirts have cut ties with the hate group as well. These companies have been publicly criticized by the media, activists, and journalists, some of them being chat services, internet merchants, social media outlets, and gaming platforms for enabling Adam Waffen Division by allowing them to use their services. As a result, Adam Waffen has been banned from Discord, which was designed to allow gamers to communicate with one another but had been used by white supremacists to share things like bomb-making instructions, plot violent gatherings, and celebrate the killings committed by Adam Waffen members. Adam Waffen has been banned from YouTube, where they had their own channel, posting their propaganda videos of violent imagery and racist messages, things that are in clear violation of YouTube's policies on hate speech that does not allow for videos made with the primary purpose of inciting hatred against individuals or groups based on certain attributes, such as race, ethnic origin, religion, disability, gender, age, veteran status, sexual orientation, or gender identity. YouTube actually hesitated pulling Adam Waffen's video at first, some of which the group had called for a race war, but after Motherboard, the Daily Beast and the Anti-Defamation League went after YouTube for allowing the videos. They eventually reversed their stance and took them down, terminating Adam Waffen's account earlier this year at the end of February. When it was discovered that Adam Waffen had a community discussion board on Steam, another gaming platform, the group was reported and the parent company of Steam promptly deleted the message board and Adam Waffen's account. In order to raise money through merchandise sales, they were utilizing Inktail, an online t-shirt retailer. They were manufacturing Nazi-themed t-shirts with designs depicting images of Charles Manson with sayings like, Give hate a chance. After ProPublica reported on Adam Waffen, Twitter began calling out Inktail, confronting them about their printing and selling shirts for Adam Waffen and helping them make a profit. Inktail immediately cut ties with the group and pulled the shirts from their online store. Cloudflare, which is a San Francisco-based company, they provide anti-hacking protection services to two of Adam Waffen's websites. And as a part of their service, they also obscure the name of the hosting company that provides Adam Waffen with their sites on the internet. But Cloudflare has maintained that they have no control over the content on these types of websites and they do not plan to cut ties with Adam Waffen because as they see it, it's up to the web host if they want to pull their sites, not them. They also pointed out that Cloudflare does have an abuse form that allows site visitors to anonymously report websites. As I mentioned, Adam Waffen division members have been linked to several violent crimes here in the United States. I wanted to briefly discuss these incidents. 
In May of 2017, 18-year-old Devin Authors killed two of his roommates, 18-year-old Andrew Wunschek and 22-year-old Jeremy Himmelman, all of whom were Adam Waffen Division members. Authors had recently converted to a violent and fundamentalist version of Islam, and apparently his roommates had ridiculed him for it. He later told investigators that he felt disrespected, so he killed them. Arthurs was subsequently found unfit to stand trial after competency evaluations and is currently housed at the Florida State Hospital. They had a fourth roommate, Brandon Russell, who was unharmed, but he was also associated with Adam Waffen. After the home was searched following the killings, bomb-making supplies and radioactive materials were discovered, and this stuff belonged to Russell. Among his personal belongings, authorities found a framed picture of Timothy McVeigh, and in his vehicle, he had several rifles, ammunition, a pair of binoculars, and a skull mask. By the way, if you go online and Google some of the Adam Waffen Division's images, you will see some of the stuff that these guys wore, and it's pretty creepy. Anyway, Russell is also said to have had plans to bomb some places, including a synagogue and a nuclear power plant in Miami. He was sentenced to five years in prison. Next, 17-year-old Nicholas Giampa of Reston, Virginia, had become disgruntled over a breakup with his girlfriend. Her parents, having concerns about his beliefs regarding neo-Nazi ideology, talked their daughter into reconsidering their relationship, which she did, effectively ending it. So, in December of 2017, he went into their home, shot and killed his ex-girlfriend's parents, turned the gun on himself, but survived his self-inflicted gunshot wound. The ensuing investigation uncovered a great deal of hatred towards the transgender community on his Twitter account, as well as a fondness of Adolf Hitler. He also frequently retweeted Adam Waffen-related user accounts, tweets that included pictures of armed Adam Waffen members waving the group's flag and stuff like that. The next crime did not involve any killings, but it is disturbing nonetheless. At a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, U.S. Marine Corps and Adam Waffen member Vasilios Pistolis was recorded carrying a torch along with other protesters chanting, White Lives Matter and You Will Not Replace Us. The following day, the second day of the rally, Pistolis attacked Emily Gorsensky, a transgender woman, and then bragged about it in a private chat conversation. He would later try to deny that he participated in the Unite the Right rally or that he attacked anyone, but after he was investigated by the Marines, he was court-martialed and subsequently sent to prison in June of 2018 for disobeying orders and making false statements. He was discharged from the Marine Corps two months later. And lastly, the crime that we are going to discuss today took place right here in Southern California, in the city of Lake Forest, located in the heart of Orange County, in an area known as the Saddleback Valley, 
its city limits also having been expanded to include the communities of Portola Hills and Foothill Ranch. And Foothill Ranch is the backdrop of today's case. In the 72nd episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Blaze Bernstein. Dreamers, I've been wanting to tell you Blaze's story for a while now. And I really want us to get to know him, who he was in life, before we get to how his story came to an abrupt end. He was 19 years old. He was a son, a brother, a friend, an Ivy League college student, a brilliantly creative young person, a budding young chef. He had an endearing sense of humor. He was a generous, gentle soul. He loved cooking, music, art, performing, writing, and experiencing all of the cultures of the world firsthand. He was described as a puzzle solver, quick-witted, an outrageously effective communicator, a strategic game player, an aspiring scientist, a thoughtful human being a helper, a problem solver, and a volunteer. Those who knew him would say he had the ability to utilize the best of both of his left and right side of his brain, excelling in his artistry as well as a scientific thinker. His family would call him a Renaissance man. He was also Jewish and he was also gay. And at the time our story takes place, Blaze was in Southern California, in his hometown, on winter break from where he attended school at the University of Pennsylvania. Blaze Nathan Bernstein was born April 27, 1998, to Father Gideon and Mother Jeannie. His parents are both natives of California, and they met in 1987 while they were students at the University of California, Santa Barbara. The couple dated and would get married in 1992. Gideon worked as a financial analyst in Costa Mesa, California, and Jeannie obtained her law degree from Pepperdine School of Law in 1995, though she would leave her practice in 2000 to become a full-time mom to Blaze and his siblings, Bo, who was 14, and Jay, who was 17. Blaze's grandmother on his father's side, Leah Bernstein, born in Romania in 1936, is one of a dwindling number of Holocaust survivors. Blaze was named after 17th century French polymath Blaise Pascal, a child prodigy who was a mathematician, a physicist, an inventor, a writer, and a Catholic theologian. On the evening of January 2nd, 2018, Blaze was at home talking to his grandfather, Richard Bernstein. He asked Blaze what his friends thought of his unique name. He said that when people would ask him about it, he couldn't recall what the backstory was. Blaze was told that he was named after Blaise Pascal. The story brought a smile to his face as his parents shared with him how proud that they were that he was living up to his namesake. They knew 
that he was destined for greatness. His mother would say, from the moment that she laid eyes on him, she knew that there was something special about him. She dreamt of his name that night, that his name was Blaze. In her words, her new son, her firstborn, was going to change the world. He was followed by two more children in their Orange County home, a place where Jeannie and Gideon fostered a loving and creative environment. That evening, the evening Blaze's grandfather would share the story of the origin of his name, would be the last evening Blaze would ever be seen alive. Blaze attended high school at the Orange County School of the Arts, OSHA for short. It is pronounced OSHA because it is formerly known as the Orange County High School of the Arts, or O-C-H-S-A, OSHA, but has since included the middle school level grades, so they took out the H and the pronunciation stuck. It is a 7th through 12th grade public charter school that accepts students based on an audition process. Aside from their academics, they cater to students with talents in performance, visual arts, literary arts, and culinary arts. Rhea Rofsky was one of Blaze's best friends from childhood, and then they attended OSHA together when Blaze was accepted. She described him as a very kind, caring, loving person, and knowing what she knew about her friend, she wasn't surprised that he wanted to attend OSHA. It was the perfect place for Blaze to explore his creativity as well as gain a quality education. Another friend of Blaze's, Claire Valou, described Blaze as one of the smartest individuals that she'd ever met. He was brilliant, she would say, with a unique quality that when you talked to him, you knew that he cared. You knew that he felt that what you were saying and how you were feeling was important to him. And with all of his friends and everyone he knew, at OSHA, Blaze flourished. His writing teacher, Eric Tyron, described Blaze as a beam of light, one of those rare kinds of students that wanted to do the work that it took to be successful. He was bright, smart, focused, determined. Blaze was the kind of student teachers dreamed of. And as he was making his way through high school, writing became his passion. I know that family and friends often speak affectionately of their loved ones in the stories that we tell. And a lot of times we've joked that if anyone ever eulogizes us by saying that we were a kind, loving, compassionate person, that they'd be lying, right? But I sense that Blaze was all of these things and more. Of course, I didn't know him, but he just seemed to possess those qualities people are saying of him. They say it with a genuineness and a lovingness that comes across while listening to Blaze's friends and family describe his character. He was a young man who was very, very much adored by everyone who knew him. There was another student who attended OSHA. 
His name? Samuel Woodward. If there were ever a polar opposite to Blaze's bright, vibrant, eclectic personality, Sam Woodward would be it. His teachers would describe him as very, very serious, basically all the time. That was his emotional range. He never smiled, he never cracked a joke, and he would never be one to chuckle at a joke either. His acting teacher recalled a time when Woodward wanted to perform a monologue all about the military. He wanted to portray a character in the military, a high-ranking member like a general or something like that. Woodward, being at OSHA, seemed to be at odds with what he appeared to be about. It was a school that centered on the arts, creativity, diversity, tolerance, and acceptance. But Woodward, many felt, was a very troubled young person and was filled with many disturbing thoughts and ideas. Blaze's friend Raya knew Woodward pretty well, and she knew he had a reputation for being bigoted, a racist, sexist, and homophobic person. She had a friend who attended a playwriting class with Woodward, and there was once this time when they were all issued copies of Raisin in the Sun, which is a play written by Lorraine Hansberry and made its Broadway debut in 1959. It's the story of a black family residing in the Washington Park subdivision in the Woodlawn neighborhood in Chicago, who strive to better their lives after receiving a windfall of insurance money after the death of their father. When the students were finished studying the play, they turned their copies back into their instructor, but Woodward's copy had the N-word scrawled throughout it. Raya also recalled seeing Woodward drawing pictures of guns in his notebook in class. She didn't say anything to anyone about it at the time, but it was definitely a moment that gave her chills. Now, I'm not sure why she didn't say anything about it to anyone. I guess maybe nobody wants to be that tattletale. And drawing guns in a notebook is a far cry from committing a mass shooting at a school. But still... Woodward appears, by all accounts, to be one of those types of young people who seem to fit the mold. And no, he didn't ever shoot up the school. But if anyone was ever worried about this kid's behavior, they weren't wrong. And even if he had shot up the school, nobody would have been surprised. What do you do with a kid like that? The drawing of the guns on the notebooks reminds me so much of the Columbine shooters, Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. Students at OSHA were pretty certain that if there was ever going to be a school shooter, Woodward was going to be that kid. But he ended up leaving the school after his sophomore year, and nobody really knew why. But... If I had to take a guess, I'd say he wasn't a good fit. He ended up transferring to a more traditional high school, and Blaze continued on at OSHA and would go on to graduate with the class of 2016. By the end of summer, after graduation, Blaze was set to head off to college, a new beginning 
and all new surroundings. The University of Pennsylvania. And if anyone would be ready for this, it was Blaze. He made new friends, and they would know from the moment they met and got to know Blaze that he was one very special young man, even by Ivy League standards. He was majoring in psychology, and he had a passion for it. The research excited him. Of particular fascination was the study of happiness. And he again was praised for his incredible writing skills. But being the polymath that he's always been, he also wanted to be a gourmet chef and he considered going into medicine. He was the kind of kid that had a desire to do it all. And all of it was driven by a desire to want to help people. He left a lasting impression on everyone who got to know him at Pennsylvania. So fast forward to winter break of 2017. Blaze was in his second year at Pennsylvania, leaving his mark on the world when he headed back home to Southern California for the holidays. It was a visit everyone had been looking forward to. They celebrated the holidays. They rang in the new year. New Year's Day fell on a Monday this year. He had that last conversation I described earlier with his grandfather about the origins of his name. And it was some time later that evening, late into the night of January 2nd, or in the early morning hours of January 3rd, that Blaze left the house. The next morning, nobody really took notice that Blaze wasn't there. They didn't know that he had left, and they didn't know that he wasn't asleep in his room. They assumed that he was sleeping in. It wasn't until later in the day, when his mom was scheduled to meet Blaze at the dentist's office for an appointment, and he didn't show up, that something was amiss. Mom began calling his phone. No answer. She called Dad. He asked her if Blaze had ever come home the evening before, and she yelled into the phone that she didn't know. She quickly left the dentist's office and headed home. Dad left work immediately as well and did the same. They rushed into his room to see if he was there. There was his wallet, his keys, his glasses, but not him. All his stuff that he would have needed with him wasn't with him except for his phone. He had his phone, presumably. His parents immediately called police, and then they grabbed Blaze's laptop and attempted to get into his social media accounts, but that wasn't easy. Finally, with the help of some of Blaze's friends, they were able to gain access to a Snapchat, and what they saw was chilling. He had sent his home address to someone and that someone was racist, bigoted, homophobe, and one-time classmate of Blaze's, Sam Woodward. Jewish and gay Blaze sent this guy his home address. To Blaze's best friend, Rhea, there could be only two possibilities for Blaze to have sent Woodward his home address, and for him to come over and pick up Blaze. Either Woodward was interested in a potential sexual encounter 
or Woodward was interested in doing Blaze harm. There was no other reason for these two to get together. They were not friends. They had nothing in common. And knowing what she knew about Woodward, more likely than not, he wanted to do harm to Blaze. Within the day, word spread that Blaze was missing. His parents went before the media and made pleas for any information regarding the whereabouts of Blaze. His mom implored the public to keep their eyes open for her son. She wanted him home with her and she wanted him home immediately. All they had was that one message on Snapchat with their home address sent out to someone they had no idea who he was. Sam Woodward. Neither Gideon nor Jeannie had ever heard this person's name before. But Rhea knew. She knew all too well. And it was terrifying to her when she heard that Blaze was missing. But when she heard that he was with Sam Woodward, the terror amplified exponentially. She knew that he was crazy. She knew that he was racist. And she knew that he was homophobic. After following some leads and looking at surveillance footage, the investigation led authorities to Borrego Park in the Foothill Ranch area of Lake Forest. The park itself is relatively big, but adjacent to it are the Whiting Ranch Wilderness Park and the Limestone Canyon Natural Preserve. And those places are enormous. The sheriff would tell reporters that the search was going to be slow and tedious, that they've got to get out there and they've got a lot of brush area to get through in the hopes of finding any sign of blaze. And the hours of searching would turn into days of searching, the desperation growing with each passing day. So aside from being a bigot, a racist, and all the other adjectives that we've used to describe him, who is the Samuel Woodward person? Well, by the time Blaze disappeared, he was a college dropout. He was working part-time and living at home. While police paid him a visit at the onset, he, according to the investigators, could not be more cooperative. He explained to Blaze's parents and to police that he and Blaze headed to Borrego Park to hang out for a little bit, to catch up, as the two old friends hadn't seen each other in a while. Woodward, in a stark contrast to Blaze, is largely unremarkable. But there is one thing about him, one very important thing. Woodward belongs to the Adam Waffen Division, and for a guy who seemingly wasn't about very much at all, had very little going on in his life, perhaps being a part of Adam Waffen filled that void for Woodward. There, he was about something. Even then, as a part of this group, he was still a follower. Nothing more than a band of misfits running around in the woods, wearing masks, waving weapons around, shouting hateful, racist chants. All the while, spending time worshipping infamous mass murderers and serial killers, 
aspiring one day to be talked about in the manner in which they are talked about. But there's a problem. How do you get there? How does your name get brought up in the conversation? How do you get to be praised and celebrated by your fellow Adam Waffen members? You kill. And who better than a Jewish gay kid? That would certainly be applauded by members of Adam Waffen once word got out that you did that. And that is allegedly what Woodward set out to accomplish. Now the desire for Woodward to make a name for himself within Adam Waffen division is purely speculation on my part. But based on what I read about the aftermath and the messages going back and forth between members, killing a Jewish person garners you a great deal of respect within its ranks. So it leads me to believe that this is a prime motivator. I also don't know to what extent Blaze understood what Woodward was like. It seemed common knowledge in high school that he was a dark, brooding teenager with a bit of a mean streak and a proclivity for violence. But by the time they got together on the evening of January 2nd into January 3rd, it was going on a year and a half since they'd graduated from high school and close to three and a half years since they'd even attended school together. People change, right? Kids grow out of those phases they get into in high school. Very few of us are like we were in high school. So maybe Blaze let his guard down. And who's to say he had very much of a guard up in the first place? Like I said, I did not know Blaze. But based on what everyone has said, I could very easily see him completely blowing past the fact that the Woodward he knew in high school had some deeply troubling issues going on and just opened himself right back up like no time had passed at all. And it's been surmised that Blaze was under the impression that Woodward was interested in him sexually, as it would have likely been the easiest way to entice Blaze to meet with him that night, considering that they did not seem to have much of a friendship otherwise, nor did the two have anything in common. There has been information uncovered to confirm that the potential for a sexual encounter was the lure that Woodward utilized in order to connect with Blaze. Information has also revealed that Woodward indicated that it was his intentions to pose as gay in order to trick an unwitting individual, but it's not clear if he had indicated to anyone or shared his plans to cause that person any harm or to murder anybody. All he's known to have said is that he was going to pretend to be gay curious to attract men only to reveal that he was leading them on because that's what they deserved and he used anti-gay slurs in talking about this. The investigation also revealed that Blaze was looking forward to meeting up with Woodward. His text message records revealed that he had texted a picture of Woodward to a friend and said that they had plans to engage in sexual activity. The person he shared this information with was a fellow student at the University of Pennsylvania, and Blaze told this individual that getting together with Woodward would be legendary. Blaze was known to have texted at least two friends about his plans with Woodward, 
And in one of those text conversations, he said that Woodward hit on him, but made him promise not to tell anyone, but he texted everyone anyway. Clearly, Blaze had no idea that he was being set up, which may explain why he had no concern about Woodward's known history of racism and homophobia. Woodward had him pretty convinced his curiosity was genuine, it would seem. At approximately 11 p.m. on January 2, 2018, Sam Woodward picked up Blaze Bernstein at his home. The two drove over to the parking lot of a Hobby Lobby that was near Borrego Park. When questioned by investigators at first, Woodward said that they had plans to meet up with another friend. He claimed that the two just sat in the car, talking and catching up. After a while, he said that Blaze got out of the car and walked over to the park alone. Woodward claimed that he waited for about an hour for Blaze, but he never came back. He went to the park to look for Blaze, he said, but he couldn't find him and left. And that was his story. Other than that, investigators had no further information or probable cause to do anything about Woodward for the time being. Though investigators did notice while talking to him in his initial interview that Woodward's hands had some scratches on them and he had dirt under his fingernails. He explained that he fell into some mud while he was participating in some sort of fight club activity. The focus next became the search for Blaze and Borrego Park became the focal point. Every resource was utilized in the search for him. His parents made the rounds in the media, getting Blaze's face out there in the news, pleading for any information leading to his whereabouts. Celebrities even took to Twitter to help use their social media following to help spread awareness of Blaze's disappearance. At the same time, police were keeping a close eye on Woodward, watching his movements to see if he may possibly lead them to Blaze's location, though he never did. The community pitched in the search. Thousands of flyers were printed out and distributed. They were hung in local businesses, coffee houses, on utility poles, everywhere. They launched a Facebook page. Helicopters and at least a dozen drones were brought in to search from the air. Everyone was looking for Blaze, unsure if they would ever find him. As each day passed with no sign, it was beginning to weigh on his mother and father that they might never find their son. The thought of that was unbearable. Blaze's friend, Raya, she knew. She knew if Sam Woodward was involved, and since it had been some days since Blaze had been missing, she knew it wasn't anything to do with a sexual encounter. She knew he was dead, and she was certain of it. She knew that Woodward had that kind of hate in his heart. Getting into day seven of Blaze's disappearance, his family, and all of those who were out there searching for him were growing weary and frustrated. Detectives had felt like they combed every inch of Borrego Park. They were on the verge of giving up. But just as they were about to throw in the towel, they decided to give it one more try. It was pouring rain that day, but they went out anyway. And the search finally came to an end and it wasn't in the way that anyone was hoping for. 
On January 9th, about a week after Blaze was last seen or heard from, he was finally discovered in a shallow grave in Borrego Park, obscured by a large tree branch and a mound of dirt. Under that wet mound of dirt was Blaze. The news devastated his family and everyone who spent the last seven days scouring that park in search of him. This was the first homicide in the city of Lake Forest, California in four years. Three days later, on January 12th, Samuel Woodward was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Blaze's autopsy would later reveal that he was stabbed more than 20 times, most of them in the neck. There was evidence of defensive wounds on his hands and on his fingers. DNA evidence collected at the scene, as well as inside Woodward's vehicle, linked him to the crime. And then Woodward would change his story. He claimed that when he and Blaze were hanging out, Blaze kissed him on the lips, and that he attempted to push Blaze off of him. Investigators noted that while telling this version of the story, Woodward became visibly agitated. He clenched his jaw and he balled up his fists as he described how he told Blaze to get off of him. So based on this information, it would seem that is going to be the basis of his defense, that he, along with his attorney, would deny that there was any element of hate to this crime and that they are likely going to claim that this was a case of self-defense. And this would mean that when this case goes to trial, that Woodward is going to have to take the stand if he's going to claim he felt threatened enough to have to resort to using deadly force against Blaze. The investigation into Woodward's background would contradict his denying this was a hate crime, however. In the beginning of this episode, I went into some details about the Adam Waffen division, so you have a basic understanding of what that is all about. Well, Woodward is a member of Adam Waffen, and by this past August, eight months after Blaze's killing, and Woodward having been charged, the Orange County District Attorney, Tony Rakakis, made the announcement that he would be adding the hate crime element to the charges, revealing that just in his phone alone, they found over a hundred items involving neo-Nazi and Adam Waffen material. In the investigation into Adam Waffen concluded by ProPublica, it was revealed that at least three individuals confirmed that they were told by Woodward that he was indeed a member of the group, an avowed member, which the district attorney described as a violent and secretive neo-Nazi group with an obsession with the occult and ties to at least five killings in 2017. D.A. Rakakis stated, we will prove that Woodward killed Blaze because he was gay, adding that materials discovered in his electronic devices were graphic and chilling and spewed hate towards almost every protected group out there. Adam Waffen is considered to be one of the most notorious extremist groups in the United States and Canada. And with Blaze having been stabbed more than 20 times, it is considered to be an act of extreme rage and hatred and was committed against him not only because he was gay, but also because he was Jewish. And with this added hate charge element, if Woodward is convicted, he could face life in prison without the possibility of parole. 
And it was, in fact, ProPublica that found Woodward's connection to Adam Waffen and contacted the Orange County District Attorney's Office to inform them of their findings, eventually prompting the DA to add those charges. As Blaze's family, friends, and his community mourned his loss, this other group, it seems, was rejoicing at the news that one of their own had committed this brutal killing. And you know I'm talking about the Adam Waffen Division. Everyone in this group says that they are a Nazi, and every one of them celebrated Sam Woodward for murdering Blaze Bernstein. Not only did he kill a Jew, he killed a gay Jew. To the Adam Waffen Division, it was like killing two birds with one stone. And to this, to Adam Waffen, this made Blaze's killing even greater in their eyes. And just how deeply rooted in hatred this group is built upon came to light in the ProPublica expose. Just in case you aren't familiar, ProPublica is an independent nonprofit newsroom that produces investigative journalism with a moral force. They dig deep into important issues, shining a light on the abuses of power and betrayals of public trust, sticking with it for as long as it takes before someone can be held accountable. Their mission is to expose abuses of power and betrayals of public trust by government businesses and other institutions, using their forces of investigative journalism to spur reform through the sustained spotlighting of wrongdoing. Investigators at ProPublica sifted through 250,000 messages over a six-month period that were somehow leaked to them, and they published them in an expose revealing some of what was said about Blaze's killing. It was ProPublica that first reported Woodward to have been a part of the Adam Waffen Division and that he was known as Saboteur and Arn in the chat group. Woodward became a topic of conversation in the private discussion forum. One user named Henrik posted on January 31st, 2018, quote, Arn was the one-man gay Jew wrecking crew, to be honest. Username Kiramar wrote, Samuel, gay Jew wrecking crew, Woodward is his new name. Username Werewolf wrote that he predicted copycat crimes would be beneficial to the group following Woodward's arrest. The group also discussed previous Adam Waffen chat logs that had been exposed by ProPublica, and some of them remain suspicious about which members may have provided the screenshots of the chat and leaked it to the press, specifically the ones that confirmed that Woodward was indeed a member of Adam Waffen. One commenter wrote, Rats and traitors, get the rope first. Based on the information ProPublica was able to obtain, it determined that Adam Waffen Division has active cells in about 23 states, and this includes California. The group's national leader is a man named James Cameron Denton, and he goes by the username RAPE in chat forums. They hold these three-day hate camps in order to train and prepare for a violent insurrection, and it's been confirmed that Woodward attended one of these hate camps in Texas sometime in 2017 and it's been documented that Woodward actively participated in the chat forums both before and after Blaze's murder. Some of his posts involved discussing the author of the violent publication entitled Siege, a 65-year-old neo-Nazi named James Mason. 
He is recognized as the so-called intellectual father by Adam Waffen Division members. I have to be honest with my dreamers. I don't know a great deal about these new neo-Nazi movements in the United States or anywhere for that matter. And honestly, it hasn't really interested me all that much. And I hope I'm not offending anyone, but it just feels like a whole bunch of wasted time and energy that propagates hatred and violence. And the fact that they have to stay hidden and underground in order to fuel their cause can attest to that. But when it comes to the surface in a crime such as this, that has caused so much hurt in our communities here in California, within the Jewish community, and the LBGTQ community as well, I have to know more about this. This James Mason, have any of you heard of him before? I hadn't until I researched Woodward and Adam Waffen, and I hadn't heard of Adam Waffen until Blaze's murder. So James Mason, he is a neo-Nazi from Chillicothe, Ohio. He became a member of the American Nazi Party in 1966 when he was 14 years old. Then, when he turned 18 in 1970, he was sworn in to the National Socialist White People's Party. He also became involved in the National Socialist Liberation Front, and later on, he would found the Universal Order. He became the publisher, writer, and editor of a newsletter entitled Siege until the mid-1980s, and later it was published into a collection of writings into a book called Siege, The Collected Writings of James Mason. I went to look up his book on Amazon, but it's been removed. There are various PDF versions available, but I feel like I'm going to end up on a watch list if I click on any of them. So... If you can't buy it on Amazon, then I have no idea where anyone would be able to get this book if they wanted it. It seems as though Mason got some of his advice from a good old friend of his, Charles Manson. He told Mason in the early 80s that he should create his own neo-Nazi operation front. And so he did, and he called it the Universal Order. Not only was Manson the one who came up with the name of the group, but he also used his jailhouse art skills to create the logo, a swastika superimposed on the scales of justice. And of course, Mason had his own brushes with the law. In the spring of 1994, he was charged with two counts of sexual exploitation of a minor and two counts of contributing to the delinquency of a minor. He was offered a plea deal and was ultimately only convicted of some weapons charges. How that happens seems a little bit shady. How do you go from sexual exploitation of a minor to weapons charges, but whatever. So with Mason's organization, they followed the ideologies of Adolf Hitler, Charles Manson, with some Satanism mixed in. And this is exactly what Adam Waffen based their ideologies on. The ideas and writings of James Mason. And in his chat postings, Woodward reclaimed that he has met James Mason and he would go back and forth from complaining about not having a girlfriend to how much he admired Adolf Hitler's manifesto, Main Kampf. It was also determined that it seemed Woodward knew that he was going to be facing his moment of truth. 
perhaps knowing that his days of freedom to post in their chat forums were numbered. When three days after Blaze was killed, Woodward wrote to the group, I just wanted to let you know, I love you so much. And he knew. They hadn't found Blaze's body yet at this point, but he knew it was only going to be a matter of time. A representative out of the Los Angeles offices of the Anti-Defamation League since Blaze's death has spoken up publicly about their findings regarding the Adam Waffen Division. In a word, dangerous. I cannot reiterate this enough. This group, their belief systems, what is at the core of their ideology is deep hatred. And it is the work of the Anti-Defamation League to shine spotlights on these types of groups that, as I had said in the opening of this episode, groups that attempt to hide in the dark and underground. It is by no means to give them any type of glorification or to give them any attention or notoriety, but rather to understand them and who they are and what they are about and to see and recognize what they are doing, what they are planning, so they can be called out and held accountable to send the message that whatever they've got going on it's going to be out in the open, so society and our communities can be prepared. People knew Woodward had a plan to lure someone into believing he was interested in a sexual encounter, only to confront them with the fact that he was only pretending. He told people, did he tell his fellow Adam Waffen members? It's likely, but at this point it isn't clear who he told but he said he was going to do it because, in his words, that's what they deserved. And unfortunately, despite all of the warning signs swirling around Woodward, despite everyone who knew him from back in high school, who knew and understood him to have these feelings towards specific groups of people, did anyone really know the extent of how deep his hatred ran? Probably not. I don't get the impression Adam Waffen division members openly parade their devotion to the group along the neatly manicured streets of South Orange County, California, or anywhere for that matter. I don't think anyone that would have been that close to Blaze would have been that close to Woodward at the same time. It doesn't sound like they shared close mutual acquaintances. So when Woodward targeted him, knowing he was gay, and had not really come out yet. He knew Blaze wasn't going to announce to anyone that they knew that they had plans to hook up. The only people Blaze told were his friends back in Pennsylvania, and they had no idea who Woodward was or what he was about. And if Woodward had asked Blaze to not tell anyone that they knew mutually, it's likely Blaze would have honored that for a number of reasons. One, he probably knew or felt or was told by Woodward that he didn't want to be outed to their high school friends. Or two, he probably didn't want those same high school friends to know that he was hooking up with the weird racist kid from back at OSHA because they might think something was fishy about it or they'd try to talk him out of it. And perhaps Blaze didn't want the word getting around just yet that he was gay. He isn't known to have told very many people. The only one that's ever spoken about it, his friend Rhea, is the only one that we've known that he's told. He never even had the chance to speak to his parents about it. He never even had the chance. Woodward saw an opportunity. 
He saw someone who was trusting, someone who was on the cusp of coming out into his own, someone who was just naive enough to fall for his ruse and not tell anyone about it. It's utterly heartbreaking to think about Blaze getting into that car that night, thinking that he's going to enjoy an evening with an old friend, a supposed old friend, only to have his life taken away so violently. The trickery behind it all is sickening. According to published reports, Woodward joined Adam Waffen in early 2016. He is known to have traveled to Texas for one of their hate camp get-togethers, which lasted three days. There, they were given instructions in using firearms, lessons in hand-to-hand combat, and they were taught camping and survival training, and these guys took pictures of themselves participating in all this stuff. There are pictures of Woodward someplace in the Texas countryside, along with several others. One picture shows Woodward at this outdoor meeting making some straight-arm Nazi salutes and covering their faces with their skull masks. But there are pictures of them without the masks on, and it is clearly Samuel Woodward in those photographs. According to one person who was there in Texas who spoke to ProPublica, he said that Woodward was pretty good with shooting both handguns and assault rifles, and this anonymous person would also say that Woodward helped organize some Adam Waffen members in California. I mentioned earlier that Woodward had two handles on the chat forum. First, he called himself Saboteur, which is pretty self-explanatory. But later on, he posted under the handle Arn, spelled A-R-N. I tried to look up what it might have meant. And there are several acronyms those letters stand for. But as far as I could tell, he only capitalized the A, so it's just the word Arn. The first thing I found is that Arn is the character in a Swedish film trilogy called Arn the Knight Templar. Arn Magnusson is a knight and the son of the powerful Fulkung dynasty in the 12th century. He grew up in a monastery and is trained in archery, swordsmanship, and horsemanship by a former knight. Arn is also said to be ambidextrous. And as the story goes, one day while he was wandering in the woods, he encountered three men trying to force a young girl into marriage. When the girl turns to Arn for help, two of the men attempt to attack him, but he ends up killing them. Though the monks at the monastery do not feel that Arn was wrong for defending himself, they question the one who trained him into being a warrior, to which they are told that Arn is not meant to be a monk, but destined to be a soldier of God. The plot of the movie follows his journey as he leaves the monastery when he returns to his family. He gets pulled into a power struggle for the crown of Vastra Gadaland. He helps his friend kill the old king, and this leads to a war between factions. Arn, along with his fiancée, are excommunicated for premarital relations, and he is falsely accused of having relations with his fiancée's sister as well, and they are forced into 20 years of atonement. His fiancé is in a convent, and he is a knight of Templar in the Holy Land to fight the people who lived in the desert of Arabia. Anyway, the story goes on. I don't want to get too far off track, but it sounds like a pretty good movie, and it seems like Arn is the protagonist of the story, a warrior, 
a swordsman, etc. So I'm thinking that that is the origin of Woodward's Adam Waffen Handel. However, I also did read that ARN is a hallucinogenic drug obtained from extracting dextromethorphan or DMX from cough medicines and dissolving the crystals into a mixture of Ritalin and isopropyl and then re-evaporated, which can be snorted, taken orally, or injected. It has psychedelic effects similar to PCP or ecstasy. So those were my two best guesses at the origin of his handle online. And like I said earlier, he talked a lot about not having a girlfriend in the chats and other stuff typical of a 20-year-old. He talked about video games that he liked to play and TV shows that he liked to watch. But he openly and frequently objected to the existence of, in his words, quote, mongrels, Jews, and gays. And by mongrels, I'm assuming he means persons of mixed racial background. He felt like James Mason's and Adolf Hitler's writings were like his versions of the Bible, divine revelations to him. To Woodward, violence and mayhem was the only way to be a true Nazi. It's hard to pinpoint Woodward's venture into wanting to be a part of this movement. It said groups like National Socialist Underground fascinated him. They were a German group that launched a sustained spree of terrorist attacks over the course of 10 years between 2001 and 2011. They robbed 14 banks. They planted explosives that killed 10 people, and most of those victims were immigrants. Woodward once wrote in a chat room, quote, the NSU was pretty cool. One documented chat conversation that he had talked about the Bosnian Civil War that took place during the 1990s. During that time, thousands of Bosnian Muslim women were raped by Serbian troops and paramilitary unit troops as a part of their so-called ethnic cleansing campaign. Woodward wrote, The only acceptable case of miscegenation, or the mixing of different racial groups, either by marriage or sexual relations or procreation, but is largely looked upon negatively in terms of its impact on the purity of a race or culture. And, by the way, anti-miscegenation is, of course, a common refrain amongst white supremacists. So, yeah, he said that the only acceptable case of this is what the Serbs did to captured Bosnian women. He wrote that in 2017. He was quite fond of the idea of using rape to frighten and terrorize women of color as he viewed them as enemies. He wrote, quote, force them to carry around the spawn of the master and the enemy. Do we need a puke break, dreamers? I swear, this guy wonders why he's single. I can hardly believe that this kind of thinking continues to permeate certain segments of society. Young people like this. I have a 19-year-old, and I cannot imagine her or any of her peers believing this nonsense. Honestly, it makes me wonder what happened to Woodward in his young life that all this anger and hatred grew from. It's just sad. When ProPublica published their expose regarding Woodward's involvement in Blaze's murder, along with his involvement in Adam Waffen, 
The group did see it and it did get their attention. They posted the article in their chat forums. Nobody felt a hint of sympathy for Blaze, naturally, at least not openly in the chat rooms. It didn't happen. He became the butt of all their jokes. They used racial slurs, slurs commonly used against the LBGTQ community, words that I'm not even going to speak and edit out because I don't say these words. Curse words I say, but slurs, I can't. One member wrote, Sam did something stupid. Not that he didn't deserve to die, just simply not worth a life in prison for. And this member did not use the pronoun he. He used a homophobic slur and a racial slur in discussing Blaze. So the Orange County District Attorney has laid out some of the evidence that they have against Woodward. He had a rented car to pick up Blaze in. Blood was discovered on the headliner of the vehicle and was tested and found to be a mixture of both Blaze's and Woodward's blood. Blood was also discovered on the driver's side visor of the vehicle as well, and this was also a mixture. Blaze's blood was also found on a sleeping bag found outside Woodward's house near the window of his bedroom. In a search of Woodward's bedroom, investigators discovered a knife that had dried blood on it, and it too was tested and was determined to be Blaze's blood. And investigators found Blaze's cell phone in Woodward's vehicle. At his preliminary hearing, along with the forensic evidence, prosecutors presented the media discovered in Woodward's phone that painted a clear picture of his homophobia, as well as his ties to the Adam Waffen division. Of course, the defendant showed little, basically no emotion during his court appearance. They were also able to present emails that Woodward sent out, where he referred to telling, quote, sodomites that I'm bi-curious, which makes them want to convert me. They were emails filled with more homophobic slurs and his detailed efforts to lure gay individuals that might be interested in him and then revealing that it was all a prank. In another email that was presented, Woodward discussed using a specific social networking website to send graphic images of gay individuals being killed to people that he was chatting with. One of his emails read, quote, they think they're going to get hate-crimed, and it scares the shit out of them. As for his defense, it looks like they might try to lean towards Woodward potentially being genuinely curious about his sexuality and the desire to explore that. His attorney focused his questionings towards investigators in court in regards to Woodward's supposed conflicted feelings about homosexuality. Investigators have spoken to another former classmate of Woodward's, a man who is openly gay, and he said throughout high school that he and Woodward discussed their sexuality, both of them, and Woodward had sent him nude photos of himself. Now my first thought is that this was more of Woodward's attempts at misleading this person into thinking that he's interested or curious only to prank him or humiliate him in some way. But who knows? I wouldn't be surprised if Woodward did indeed have feelings that he was conflicted about, and perhaps he didn't like that aspect of himself. I don't know. That's a deep dive that I'm not really qualified to make, especially since I don't know him. 
Woodward also told detectives that he has Asperger's syndrome, and this is a disorder that could potentially affect his ability to conduct himself appropriately or easily in social interactions. If Woodward has a diagnosed history of Asperger's syndrome, which I have not yet found any information to confirm, though the trial has yet to occur, it is an aspect to be considered. And this gives us yet another layer of this person to think about. We've discussed the potential effect on someone's personality that Asperger's can have, specifically with Elliot Roger, and some listeners believe it's an important mitigating factor when discussing the crimes these individuals eventually commit. And it is a hot-button topic, and I'm not going to dismiss it outright. But the information is out there, it's just not been confirmed yet. And there are listeners who feel that the possible diagnosis of Asperger's is not a mitigating factor, at least not enough in cases such as these, and we are just going to have to wait and see how all of this plays out in court. It doesn't feel like Woodward has much of a defense. His attorney might be hoping for a second-degree murder conviction, but even then, there are many aspects of what Woodward did leading up to Blaze's killing that do not lend to that. And then there is the element of the hate crime. Hate crimes in California are prosecuted very aggressively, and the laws are quite complex. If someone commits a crime, and a factor in the motive for the crime was to target someone because of their race, religion, ancestry, gender, sexual orientation, skin color, disability, or national origin, it will be considered a hate crime. The prosecution has to prove that this was an element in the crime, and it was the intention of Woodward to harm Blaze specifically because he was gay or Jewish or both. Woodward also has the potential to be sued in civil court by Blaze's family following the criminal trial, and if he's convicted with the hate crime enhancement, then that conviction alone will establish his civil liability, and all that needs to be considered is how much damage was suffered. In Woodward's case, because he's accused of killing someone and the motive was because of race and or sexual orientation, the hate crime element is considered a special circumstance and it does become punishable by life in prison or by the death penalty. But it does not appear as though the Orange County DA is seeking the death penalty in this case. And that could be because of a number of factors, including the age of the offender, the lack of an extensive criminal history, as well as the wishes of Blaze's family. And another thing Woodward's attorney pointed out at his preliminary hearing is that it is not a crime to write or possess reprehensible or objectionable material on his electronic devices or online, stating, quote, There are many among us who have things in our electronic devices that are objectionable, if not shameful. Which is true. But it isn't the first time a criminal defendant's online activities have come into evidence in court. It lends to the circumstances surrounding the defendant, what was going on in their life at the time of the crime, what their state of mind might have been like. Nowadays, the cell phone, the computer, the social media accounts are often some of the first places investigators look for information and evidence to help define or solidify a criminal case. And what his attorney said is true. Just because he has all this hate stuff in his phone, none of that is illegal. But hey, 
How many of us would be damned in court if our browser histories were examined? As of this episode here, my Google history is not pretty. But for Woodward, it seems to all fit, and it makes sense, as to what he was all about when he decided that he had the right to take Blaze's life. In an interview I saw on CBS, I believe, Blaze's family, devastated by his loss, of course fondly remembered him. His grandfather spoke of his vivid imagination, his curiosity, always wanting to know and learn. Blaze was deeply loved. His grandmother, a Holocaust survivor, had a love for Blaze and the rest of her grandchildren, unlike anything else in this world. She holds on to pictures and memories tightly. He lives in their hearts. And of all the horrors his grandmother has seen in her life, it is now the loss of Blaze, her Blaze, her young grandson, that she loses sleep over every night. She thinks of him constantly, incessantly, before sleep finally takes over. To his grandparents, the world lost a beautiful soul. And to that, even though I didn't know Blaze, I would agree. His grandfather says he thinks the world lost a beautiful soul. I would say, I know it did. I told you dreamers that the day Blaze was found, it was in the rain. And that rain came pouring down from the heavens that washed away just enough of what was concealing Blaze in order for his location to finally be revealed. To his family, that was the heavens opening up its skies, and the rain came down. His killer put him in a grave and covered him up with dirt and mud, and the rain washed it all away, uncovering Blaze's face so he could finally be found. The one thing, aside from Blaze's death, that shattered his loved ones is the why. Why did this happen? Thinking about the why makes his death unbearable. His family can't even utter the words. They won't speak of it publicly. All they want is for anyone and everyone who was touched or moved by this story that I'm telling you today. Any of you who have heard Blaze's name for the first time through this, for you to pay it forward to do something good in the name of Blaze. And 10 months after Blaze's death, 11 people were killed in a Pittsburgh synagogue, and it thrust the issue of anti-Semitism back into the national spotlight again. I'm sure you listening remember this is a very recent mass shooting, which occurred at the Tree of Life congregation in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on October 27th of this year, perpetrated by 46-year-old Robert Bowers. It is the deadliest attack against the Jewish community in U.S. history. So as Blaze's family mourned, Adam Waffen delighted in his death. I touched on this earlier. They made t-shirts with Woodward's mugshot emblazoned across it, 
Investigative journalists have been keeping their eyes on Adam Waffen for several years now, and members have spoken out, though their identities are concealed. They join, they say, for reasons, for reasons of camaraderie, the militancy, the brotherhood, the common interests, you know, the feelings of belonging, the common interests of hating specific groups of people. The members who have spoken out would confirm that they do not like being associated with the alt-right. As a matter of fact, they despise it. And when Woodward, a privileged kid from Orange County, joined, he was immediately drawn in. And those who knew him in the group were not all surprised that he would commit a crime like this. He began wearing the Adam Waffen skull mask and attending their meetings and retreats. The things they aspire to do, to obliterate power grids, water plants, telephone lines, the desire to shut down the system, it is all fueled by hatred. Ambitions that are unrealistic, but with a hate that is very, very real. But their main priority is to kill Jewish individuals. Second on the priority list are gay individuals and they are in chat rooms applauding Woodward's actions, reveling in it, laughing at it. L-O-L-O-C, they type repeatedly, laughing at Blaze's murder in Orange County. Adam Waffen desires for Jewish people to be wiped off the face of the planet. The murder of Blaze not only angered the Jewish and LBGTQ community, it also caused fear. The fear that this group, known for the worst kind of racism, anti-Semitism, and hatred, is beginning to emerge from the shadows and putting themselves on the forefront of their movement. And as Blaze's grandmother would recall, he was a target, just as she was all those years ago, when she was made by Hitler's Nazis to wear a yellow star. The irony is not lost on Grandma that she escaped that only to have it follow her. That is what she has said. It is following her. The tentacles of hate that continue to transcend time, space, and generations. Blaze's family is fighting hate with love. And Grandma has not lost hope because to her, she continues to believe the good will always outweigh the evil. And they fight. They blaze it forward, guiding their grief into a movement of kindness and love, establishing a memorial scholarship in Blaze's memory. On the Facebook page, they raise money for foster care, for at-risk youth. They raise money for OSHA, doing what they can to honor Blaze, to repair the hurt in any small way that they can. Thousands came to honor Blaze at the Orange County LBGTQ Pride Parade in June, and they rededicated the parade in his name, in his memory. This is the way Blaze's family now lives. This is what they've dedicated themselves to. It's their promise to turn what happened to their son into something inspiring. And if they can move one person away from Adam Waffen, then they've won. And it seems they did.
The Adam Waffen member who spoke to CBS said that because of Blaze's murder, he left the group. Without revealing his identity, he expressed his sorrow for what happened, for what Woodward did to Blaze and to his family. And in the park where Blaze's life ended, where his life was extinguished, people from around the world have left stones in his memory. And this is where he lives on, in the memories and dreams of those who knew and loved Blaze. And this brings the 72nd episode of California Dreaming to a close. Thank you for your patience in me getting this episode put together. I did not want to rush it, but there's also another reason, and it will become clear very soon by way of a bonus that I've recently recorded as well. So there's that. Don't forget, if you aren't already a member of the Facebook group, please come and join. Come to discuss this case as well as all the other cases we cover on this show or any other podcasts that you enjoy listening to. Current events, crime news, all the good happy stuff as well. You can also follow me on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. Also, really quickly before I go, I did receive a few more Christmas bonuses on Patreon from Anna W. and DDJ. And those came after I recorded the beginning of this. So I wanted to thank you. And I'm going to try to remember to thank you too at the beginning of the next episode as well in case you missed this. Thank you for all of your love and all of your support of our show. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our content and rosters of shows, and to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. And I am very proud to be a part of this group of shows and hosts. So, please come and visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com You can follow the links to all of our shows, to our merchandise stores, and to our blog. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Dreamers, thank you so much again for listening. Until next time, sweet dreams.